Hello, Earthlings. It's Raella from Space Matters, girl from Earth talking stuff of stars. Welcome to the first audio compliment of Space Matters, where we are celebrating my friend and soon to be yours, the Mars Science Laboratory, aka Curiosity. Don't know her, never heard of her. Well, let's get started, because I have a lot to share with you about the baddest bot to ever visit Mars. And so does my special guest, Mallory Lefland, a NASA JPL systems engineer whose first Martian was Curiosity. But first, I'm going to take you through Curiosity's first year in some detail. Then I'm going to recap, or attempt to recap, 10 years of science exploration by Curiosity. Then you'll get to hear my conversation with Mallory Leftland. Happy birthday, Curiosity. Let's go. On this day, August 5th, in 2012, Earthlings at NASA and around the planet gathered to witness Curiosity's landing. It was a global intrigue. I heard that even President Obama called to congratulate the team on Curiosity's successful landing. After what is lovingly known to EDL teams everywhere on Earth attempting to land on Mars as the seven minutes of terror, the whole world celebrated the robot's successful touchdown around 10.45 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. And quite the touchdown it was. Curiosity's mechanism for landing was a technology display of its own. Wait, did you know? Curiosity was the first robot to land via a technique known as the sky crane. Curiosity was, in 2012, the heaviest robot to ever attempt to land on Mars, and the sky crane technique helped prove it was possible to land such an enormous robot on the surface. Here's the deal. After traveling the 566 million kilometer trip from Earth to Mars, Curiosity enters the Martian atmosphere at like 21,000 kilometers per hour, like super fast. Then whoosh, the supersonic parachute deploys and the descent speeds slow, but we're still traveling pretty fast, but slow enough for the heat shield to separate now. So the heat shield separates and falls away. And this is where Curiosity's Marty, or Mars Descent Imager, starts recording. And then, 12 seconds before touchdown, the sky crane maneuver begins. Curiosity is lowered to the surface on cables and its six wheels are deployed for landing. Then it's touchdown. When Curiosity's wheels hit that Martian surface, the cables are severed and the descent stage flies away to crash at a safe distance from Curiosity. Check out this week's volume of Space Matters to see the insanely cool footage of the last two minutes of descent from Curiosity's Marty. Also during the EDL phase, Curiosity was taking measurements with an instrument on board called Medley. The Mars Entry Descent Landing Instrument took measurements of the Martian atmosphere the whole trip down. I do want to stop to say that none of this would be possible without the aid and communications from the fleet of Mars orbiters. The orbiter Mars Odyssey was specifically moved a bit in its orbit in preparation to better capture Curiosity's landing and also to communicate back to Earth. 
All eyes and ears were on curiosity that Sol and the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter even caught what the team called a paparazzi-esque image of curiosity still attached to its parachute on the way to the Martian surface. See that paparazzi image of curiosity from MRO in this volume of Space Matters. By the way, one Sol or one Martian day is equivalent to approximately one day on Earth. If you want to be accurate, a Sol is exactly one day, 37 minutes long. One Martian year, that is the time it takes Mars to orbit the sun once, is equivalent to roughly two Earth years. If you want to be accurate, a Martian year lasts 687 days. Once on the surface, Curiosity and her team wasted no time at all. Curiosity accomplished a lot in her first year, or half a Martian year, on Mars. She basically completed her primary science mission in her first 90 sols. That's incredible. By the end of her first 14 sols there, she had successfully unveiled all 17 of her cameras, began testing all 10 science instruments, and had started driving around the Martian scape. With more bits and bobs to test out than any other robot before her, Curiosity and her ground team of Earthlings had concluded by the 38th Sol what is known as the characterization phase. Curiosity had successfully demonstrated all of her major capabilities. She unfolded her mast, the arm, turned some wheels around, etc. The next step was the first long drive. The base of Mount Sharp was 20 kilometers from where Curiosity landed. And Mount Sharp was the prime scientific objective location. But the first stop along the floor of Gale Crater was a spot called Glenelg. Curiosity would drive 400 meters to Glenelg over the course of a few weeks. On the way there, Curiosity would already discover evidence of an ancient stream bed on Mars in the form of conglomerate rocks. Curiosity would reach the spot known as Glenelg by her 52nd soul. This area had intrigued scientists before Curiosity even landed. Images from high-rise, one of the cameras on the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, had shown the area appeared to have three different kinds of rocks that meet together at Glenelg. So intriguing this area would turn out to be, the Curiosity would spend the better part of her first year on Mars right here at Glenelg. It was here that she'd scoop her first scoops, focus her cameras on hundreds of geological features, and use her labs to conduct her first science experiments. By Curiosity's 84th soul, she and her team of Earthlings surprised everyone by taking the very first Curiosity selfie. This selfie was made possible by Curiosity's Molly. Molly, or the Mars hand lens imager, is Curiosity's equivalent to a magnifying glass that geologists would usually take with them into the field. Molly can take microscopic images of minerals, textures, and structures in rocks and soils at scales smaller than the diameter of a human hair. Molly can also take a mosaic of photos of the robot itself to produce those Curiosity selfies which is especially cool because it was not designed with taking selfies in mind whatsoever, but Curiosity's Earthlings figured out how. You can check out some of Curiosity's many selfies from over the years in this week's volume of Space Matters. On Sol 182, 
Curiosity conducted its first sample drilling on Mars at a rock called John Klein. The first rock sample of its kind would be analyzed by Sam and Kemen in the following souls and found to have sulfur, nitrogen, hydrogen, oxygen, phosphorus, and carbon, some of the key chemical ingredients for life. Wait, did you know? Curiosity was the first to drill on Mars. Curiosity has made a total of 35 drill holes in her 10 years on the surface. On Sol 200, Curiosity stopped what she was doing because of a glitch on the primary computer. Her team quickly began recovery by switching to the redundant, though not in this case, B computer. For the next Many souls, the Curiosity team worked tirelessly to figure out what had gone down with the A-side computer, while also setting up B-computer to be the new primary. I'm going to leave this story for my special guest, Mallory Lethland, who discusses this infamous Soul 200 event with me, soon to come. The computer swap barely slowed Curiosity or the team down. Less than a month later, the team was back to planning science observations. By Sol 227, ChemCam would return the chemical data from the wall of the first drill hole. Have we talked about ChemCam yet? The chemical and camera instrument consists of two remote sensing instruments. First is the Planetary Science Laser-Induced Breakdown Spectrometer, or LIBS. And the second is the Remote Microimager, or RMI. The LIBS provides elemental compositions, while the RMI places the LIBS analyses in their geomorphological context. Wait, did you know? Curiosity was the first to shoot a laser at rocks on Mars? For science, of course. As of this reading, Curiosity has zapped rocks almost one million times. On Sol 354, Curiosity's genius Earthling team used the robot's SAM instrument to vibrationally hum Happy Birthday on the robot's one-year anniversary of landing on Mars. Here it is now. Happy Birthday, Curiosity, from your SAM instrument. Thank you, Sam, for that rendition. It might be my favorite. In the years to follow, Curiosity would continue to wow at every stop along the floor of Gale Crater. Gale Crater was undoubtedly once a very active lake. The geological record was more rich than anyone expected and captured more years of Martian planetary history, too. Around three billion years ago, there was a dramatic change in the geological history of Mars. Curiosity's adventure through Gale Crater on the way to Mount Sharp revealed ancient streams that led to ancient deltas that led to a giant ancient lake itself. Mount Sharp, too, has proven itself to be formed by the persistent movement of water that scientists had expected. 
many, many years, and it turned out to be many millions of years of constant water flow in what is now known as Gale Crater, left behind layers and layers of different sediment and rocks from the surrounding areas. The mountain had formed when the lake was still there. And as Curiosity makes her way up Mount Sharp as we speak, she continues to find evidence for that ancient lake bed higher and higher on the mountain, meaning that the lake persisted longer and longer in the geological timeline. These scientific feats are made possible by the suite of chemical analysis instruments on board Curiosity and the earthbound team of scientists who analyze the data it produces and also thanks to all of Curiosity's cameras and the earthbound team of scientists who can recognize various geological features because they have seen them occur here on Earth. And, perhaps least discussed, the machines that allow Curiosity to run all these cool science experiments and capture all these incredible photographs and transmit all this information back to Earth where yes, the earthbound team of engineers is constantly working at keeping the systems happy and dreaming up ways to enable Curiosity to do more for a longer time. I had the pleasure of sitting down and chatting with one of these earthbound engineers, Mallory Leffland, a systems engineer at NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab. Currently, she serves as the Entry, Descent, and Landing Flight Systems Lead for the Mars Sample Retrieval Lander, which is part of the Mars Sample Return Mission. Before working on MSR, Mallory was part of the team that landed Perseverance in Jezero Crater in 2021. And before that, Mallory's first Martian was our friend, the Mars Science Lab, Curiosity. I was very excited to get to hear Mallory's perspective of the complex machine that is Curiosity. Here's Mallory celebrating Curiosity with me. Oh, and one last thing. Any opinions expressed in this interview are Mallory's own. They in no way represent the official opinions of NASA and or JPL. Mallory is a badass and her personal opinions should matter to you anyway. Yeah, it's funny, like about 10 years, I watched the Curiosity landing from the floor of my parents' living room, like two in the morning, because I was on the East Coast. Mm -hmm. And that was going into my last semester in college. And then like less than a year later, I was working on Curiosity, which was like a very strange kind of situation. And I spent about two years working on Curiosity before working on Mars 2020 and SRL. Amazing. And can you tell me exactly what you did on Curiosity? Sure. So I started on the engineering operations team, which is the team of engineers who are responsible for getting all of the data down every day from Curiosity, understanding what did she do the day before? Was it the right thing to do? Is the spacecraft healthy? Um, kind of both like on a day-to-day -day basis, is the spacecraft healthy, but also like long-term, the way you try to keep your car good for 100,000 miles, what do you have to do to kind of keep the spacecraft operational and safe over years and years on Mars? And so day-to-day -day you're working, you know, what is the data and then what is the plan for the next day? Um, and then kind of on the side, you start working different ways to make the spacecraft healthy and safer and long-term plans. And so um, I was kind of doing the day-to-day -day data analysis and running the team of people who look at um, all of the data. But then I started working on this 
new software that we was sort of already on the spacecraft, but had never been tested and we weren't allowed to use it. But it was essentially a way to use all of the heaters and thermal system much more efficiently. So you could do more in the day um, because you didn't have to waste enough as much energy heating everything. Uh, and so, but it ran on this like very, like a separate computer than the flight computer. And so you had to make sure, because the flight computer wasn't on to kind of check that everything was good, you had to really make sure the system worked safely mm-hmm. so you didn't overheat something and break it. And so for about six months, I worked on that area of software, testing it and trying to formulate like, how do we actually use this in flight? And then I was able to do what we call a first time activity, which is where it's like the first an FTA where you've never done something on the spacecraft before. And so it's like the first time checkout of that behavior to make sure it's safe. Um, and so kind of like the build up to showing this is safe, we should use it. And then, yeah, now they use it every day, which and is really cool. What exactly is that behavior? It's called dream mode. So, <laughs> and it's essentially, so like normally you have your flight computer, which is kind of like an energy hog. And when it's on, you kind of have all your systems active. You're looking at all your data, your telemetry from everywhere to make sure you're not overheating things, things aren't getting too cold. But we sometimes have to heat actuators for eight hours or six hours because it's really cold. They're massive chunks of metal. And so uh, if you were to keep your computer on just to do that, you're, by the time you've heated up whatever you need to use, you probably can't use it for that long. Uh, so if you think like, oh, you want to drive at 9 a.m., you don't want to have to wake up the computer at 5 a.m. to just to heat up the actuator. So dream mode was essentially you could tell this other smaller computer, you do all of the heating. I'm going to tell you what to heat, when to start. And then when the flight computer wakes up at 9 a.m., everything is ready wow. to go. Wow. And so there's like a careful handoff between the two computers that are involved Mm -hmm. uh, to kind of make sure that everything is set up properly to be safe. So how many computers total? Because I was actually going to ask you what you knew about. I came across this little mystery because I was going through just trying to pick one picture from every camera on Curiosity. Okay. And I happen to notice that around Sol 200. Oh, yeah. I know exactly. Yeah, go on. The cameras, some of the cameras switch from mm-hmm. A to B. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, what's going on? So, of course, I started to look for the answer. Yeah. And I remembered after I had seen a headline about the computer swap. Mm-hmm. Um, so, can you tell me anything about that situation? Yeah, Sol 200. So I started working on Curiosity around Sol 300. And the only reason I can I know that is because I know how long it was since Sol 200. Like that is a like moment in it's time that everyone yeah, remembers. So so we have two main flight computers. Okay. Um, okay. It's kind of funny, depending on how you define computer, there I'd like ma- to know how you do. Oh, God. I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Um, Too existential for Yeah. Today. But so we have two main flight computers, but then like many other boxes have their own boards and their own cards okay. that like are essentially computers or mini versions of computers. And then most of our payloads also have some sort of computer-esque board, depending on what the payload is. So there's okay. like a lot of different systems like it's funny yeah like some of our instruments bring more memory with us than we bring on our flight computer okay just because of the way things work out um 
But yeah, so we have two main flight computers and normally the plan is one is on operating and then the other one is off and used as a backup. Uh, when you're flying to Mars, like so from launch all the way through landing, there's one computer always on because as you're you know flying the spacecraft through space, you need all of your sensors on all of the time. And you're also, the power story works out a lot better that you can just keep things on. Once you land on Mars, the energy and power story kind of changes and you're power negative. Um, even with like your base avionics on, you start becoming power negative. So you can't stay awake all of the time. And so you actually go through a system where the spacecraft, like Curiosity is probably on during like a normal human schedule-ish, like awake during the day because that's when the sun is out. That's when you can take pictures, when you can drive and then goes to sleep like in the night-ish and then wakes up a few times uh, to communicate with orbiters based on when they're flying over. But essentially probably like Thank eight- you, orbiters. Yeah, a lot of data. But, but like imagine just like a normal kind of human, like eight hours you're awake and then kind of mm -hmm. napping and things like that. And so- I mean, that's sweet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and you just have, so you have like that one computer that's on and then mm -hmm. Um, yeah, you turn it on and off based on when you're trying to keep the spacecraft And awake. it's running, of course, on like the cruise software, right? There's like a whole different... Well, so when we... So for Curiosity, there was a different... So the software that was um, on the spacecraft during cruise through landing mm -hmm. was one version and then it got updated. I'm not sure how soon after landing, but essentially that way, all of the like surface behavior, like driving and using the arm, you can kind of separate the development and testing gotcha. of it. Um, that's cool. Yeah. And smart. Yeah. It yeah. like, it's good in some places, kind of complicates things. Updating software on Mars is a five day process. It's like a whole ordeal <laughs> that is I mean it's a truly amazing that the communications are possible the way that they are yeah and so yeah and you don't think about how much data no. it really right and just requires. like the if you if you kind of treated like every car you drove or every computer you had as like this is the only one I get for the rest of my life you'd be much more careful right so it's like <laughs> A software update, you know, if you just think, oh, worst case on my computer, I'll just like hard reset, bring it to a show. It's like none of that really works. So you have to do it in this way that is sometimes very annoying, but also the only way you can carefully say, I'm not going to mess this up. Right. Yeah. Um, you kind of have one yeah, shot. One shot. Every time. Yeah. <laughs> so, but so for Sol 200, that was this, um, the prime computer at the time, which we called A. RCA was it had a hardware failure in one of the chips in its computer. And that failure illuminated a software bug that wouldn't have otherwise, it would have taken, you wouldn't have otherwise known about that software bug necessarily, but the hardware fault, the hardware fault made that bug act in a certain way kind of. And so it put the spacecraft in this state where it did not shut down. So it was having a problem, you know, we tell it, this is when you need to go to sleep. Right. And the computer just was in a way ignoring that command, both because of the hardware and software bug, like interacting in this way, mm -hmm. which is then bad. Cause like I said, we're power negative. And right. so if you stay up and just keep everything awake, eventually you run out, Right. your batteries run out. 
then that's bad. That's bad. And we have ways to, you know, we plan in mechanisms of like, if the batteries ever get too low, do X, Y, and Z. But also the spacecraft at this point, the computer was in a very, very weird state, like kind of a zombie state where we have all of these protections in the software that say like, if this thing doesn't happen every 15 minutes, you know something's wrong. Or like, if this thing doesn't happen every second, something's wrong. So like, there's all these ways, we call them watchdogs. Yeah, and you're trying to check. Like, the problem was the spacecraft was doing just enough that every system was like, oh, I'm good, except not enough to shut down and do other things. So it was like this very strange off nominal case. And the team, they got data down, saw that the spacecraft was, had not gone to sleep, kind of brought everyone in and was like, this is an emergency. And basically figured out like, depending on how it played out, it could be mission ending because they weren't entirely sure. You don't like, re it was like in a very weird state. Um, so they ended up sending commands to swap computers kind of behind the computer's back. Because we didn't trust. It's really weird to be like, hey, computer, that's not working. Can you also work enough to try to do this thing right. to get to the other computer? Right. Um, so you sort of have to take a much bigger hammer and say, we don't trust this computer. Yeah. And so and that's. You were able, they were yeah, able to they were do able that. to get to the backup computer. And then that's why you see the B side cameras start working because those cameras are connected to that other computer. And then, yeah, we stayed on B side, I believe, for the rest of We like occasionally go back and forth, but they had to do a whole, um, like, they had to do a weeks of development to figure out a way to fix the software and the hardware. So it was. I, I think that, yeah, I believe A-Side is still pretty distrusted to date. Yeah, well, so it was, um, we don't really want, if we really didn't trust anything, you don't, you'd want to set up the system so that you never used it if it was untrustworthy. Um, so there was a lot of work to like get it back to the point where you trust it, it's safe, like it could operate the vehicle. There are fault cases where the B will swap to the A-Side if, if it detects a problem with B. So it's still there, um, gotcha. it just... It's back on board. Yeah, just some of the performance is slightly degraded because they had to work around and fix certain things. Right. So. Well, thank goodness for B. Yeah. No, it's like, it's building a system with redundant hardware can be very difficult and annoying. Um, but then you look at issues like that and right. you kind right. of have to. Yeah, no, it's definitely wise if you can do it. Yeah. Yeah. And I've got to ask, is there because the rest of the cameras that don't have the redundancy still talk to B, right? Yeah, so it depends on um, kind of how you choose to implement this system. So some cameras are just like point to point direct to one computer. So in that case, you have to bring two sets of cameras because each computer talks to only one set. Mm -hmm. uh, certain other cameras, like if you looked at, I think like Marty, or if you look at any of like Mass Cam, uh, Chem Cam, trying to think of Molly. Which, Molly. So all of those are either inside a payload where there's only one payload or Marty with its own thing. So those are set up where they're wired that both computers can read them. Thank they're, goodness. Yeah. yeah. And so there was just a That's set. That's smart too. Yeah. Yeah, and it just kind of depends on like how it kind of works out. While we're talking about cameras, can I throw something a little wild in sure, here? Sure, go for it. Have you heard 
of the James Cameron curiosity story. No, but weirdly, sorry, someone at work was talking about James Cameron yesterday because, and he's like, something about he, okay, you tell me, because I think someone like he wanted to fund a camera for something. Is that part of it? From what I've been able to tell, he supposedly was like a main part of one of the camera teams. I believe it was the mast cam team that he was like fully active part of. And he was supposed to shoot the first movie on Mars with Curiosity and the mast cam. But at the last second, they couldn't do the zoom. Was it the mast cam that maybe ever had a zoom? Maybe. I know that there was a zoom function on the next version of the mast cam, which we flew on Perseverance. So that maybe checks. And by the way, James Cameron, as far as I know, was never called about Perseverance okay. and zoom camera. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, apparently that was the final straw for him. He was like, no, if I can't have the zoom, I'm not shooting the movie. Okay. I did not know that. You kind of have to figure out what to do there because you still have your science goals of the mission but you need to do some outreach and it's kind of a like there's some missions now that fly with like the the chinese mission that just landed on mars had a selfie Zero. camera yeah, yeah yeah which is like i don't think sir i don't know enough Served about no it science right purpose. but like i think they just like dropped it yeah. and came back it literally was like a paparazzi for Zero. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Check me out. I'm on Mars. Right. So it's like you kind of have that stuff now. Where Curiosity was lucky that the Molly camera, they like found the way to do the selfies, which is a crazy, crazy thing. So cool. Yeah. And yeah. now it's just a thing they There's do. There's like but, tens of them. Yeah. Right. But I don't think that was ever considered as part of it. Right. But they do, they do tell the team back here on Earth about the dust on Curiosity, right? Yeah. Not that oh. it matters because she's not solar powered. But. Right. And like you can, yeah, exactly true. Um, <laughs> but, and like, I think they probably had things where they wanted to look under the belly pan or do certain things. But yeah. I think, yeah, now there's kind of this effort to be like, what can we both do for science and is there anything like public outreach that you could get from right? It's a shame. I think, I think there's a way that there you can really just direct, make that hard science fun for the public. Yeah. It's just, it's really difficult to get there. That is what I'm trying to do. You were talking about a heat system and I got unnecessarily concerned just the other day about exactly the fact that Curiosity is not run on solar. It's great, of right. course, because she doesn't need to be worried about getting covered in right. dust. But there is ultimately an end yes. to that battery. Did your heat configuring have anything to do with that? Um, like, I would say indirectly. So you know that... Yeah, so you know as time goes on, the amount of energy you're going to get from the RTG, which is where the nuclear source is, will eventually, it, it'll decrease. Right. Um, and so over time, they you know, like the kind of, the, if you were to say, what is the, to operate the spacecraft, to just turn on the spacecraft and just sit there what is like the base set of things you need. Mm -hmm. So you kind of have that set that you need to power and then everything on top of that, right? If we need to communicate with orbiters, we need to start turning on various telecom devices. If we want to take pictures, we have to turn on the cameras. A lot of this stuff needs to be controlled thermally, heated because um, 
it's cold depending on what time of year it is there it's mm -hmm. much colder so you kind of start to play games as you have less and less energy to use every day you have to try to figure out how do you fit in as much as you can mm -hmm. um, so i would say the thermal dream mode um, helps in that you can keep a lot of your base avionics off and still do the heating you can fit more in a day i think what will eventually need to happen is you start to change how you operate things so maybe you take a look at that base set of what you need and start to figure out are there lower power modes we can operate things in and how do we continuously optimize so that we fit either the same or we're smarter about what we do in a day because we know we have less energy right um yeah, and I think then eventually with nuclear power missions, eventually you don't have enough to do anything. And if if nothing happens before then, that's kind of the quote unquote like death of the spacecraft or end of it. But you, if you've gotten all the way to that point, you've passed like so many milestones. Yeah. Uh, because we don't design spacecrafts like the the prime mission was, was two years. Two right? years, right? Yeah, because yeah, I think it was one. Yeah, maybe like one March, something right. like that. Yeah, so it's two years, so we're already way past, way past that. that. And so, yeah, I think if everything survived at that point, it's like, it's good. That's You've done amazing. a good job. Yeah, yeah, that's very cool. And I hope Curiosity does survive until she's just taking that one last picture yeah, a day. Yeah, <laughs> it'll be really, it'll be sad. Um, I had a friend who worked on Spirit and Opportunity, and that was very emotional for her when Opportunity like when they finally kind of called it. Opportunity's the only other robot to live 10 years plus on yeah. Mars. Yeah, that was a, yeah. It's a hard blow. Yeah. I think this might be the perfect segue to okay. talk to you about something that I am working on, which okay. I'm calling Don't Touch the Mars Robots. Okay. So I'm sure you've heard at some point, NASA wants to send humans to Mars. Mm -hmm. We could talk about your opinions on whether or not this is going to happen. Okay. But let's just say it's going to. I was trained as an archaeologist. And have you heard of this thing called a World Heritage Site? UNESCO World Heritage yes. Site? I don't know, like, the qualifications, but yes. I can, I can read them to you. Okay. Basically, it's just, you know, any place of human importance in the, you know, arts, sciences landscapes even you know like mm -hmm. ecological systems things like that and so i think what is like the more yeah. perfect example of a piece of evidence of human history ingenuity in science and art than the first robots we sent to yeah. explore another planet so when i read the 50 initiatives for the moon to mars mission and one of them was to locate on the moon too, but let's just talk about Mars okay. for a minute. <laughs> um, locate, retrieve, upgrade, and potentially use parts from oh, whoa. Okay. the Mars rovers. I was like, hey man, don't touch the bots. So I think, I propose, I'm proposing a petition that says we should leave them be a few provisions. Anyone like Opportunity or Spirit who is just covered in dust and that's the only reason why they're not operating. Somebody should design a really cool fan that doesn't touch them, but 
can dust them off. Yeah. That we should do. Everybody should get dusted off, I think. And like, if you can continue operations from there, great. Mm -hmm. Leave them alone. Let them keep working. Although curiosity, yeah, if which, she yeah. wasn't, you couldn't help her. But I would love to visit Curiosity at the archaeological site. Yeah. At the, like pretty much the top of Mount Sharp, I'm sure, is where she'll end yeah. up. So yeah, what do you what do you think about that? It's a good question. So I'll first say I've never thought about this before. So I like that. <laughs> also, I'll just say right here, my opinions are not of, I do not represent JPL NASA. Yeah, I like that. I mean, I, it's funny. My first thought was in the Martian, which is like, if it's a human life being saved, like that's right. like a separate like right. asterisk. That's like exactly yeah. another provision. Right. Yes. Um, yeah. And I mean, honestly, I don't think, I don't think there would really be any use of them to begin with. I figure by the time humans get there, whatever technology we're using should have surpassed what we have sent on these missions. Right. So I do like the idea of like, we shouldn't be banking on them, like their parts being useful for anything. I also don't think given if they're there for years and years, anything will work. Like they were not designed to sit in the Martian environment most of the time with like no thermal control, like things will just kind of break over time. I mean, what I would also think is really cool is, so not just the space, like the rovers themselves, but we kind of throw off and crash so much hardware for all of them. And the state of that hardware, just being able to look at it would tell us a lot. Because um, even we just got images just like a few months ago of the parachute and the, um, the crash back shell, right. which from, from the helicopter. Yeah, from the helicopter. And from like working, it, that, those pictures like truly, my brain short circuited. It was crazy because like I didn't ever expect in my lifetime to see a picture of that on Mars. Like that's just was crazy to me. But we were able to learn a lot from it. And that wasn't even, so I think there's like an element too of like the state of this hardware could teach us more, but I think you don't need to take it apart or... It doesn't have to be destructive yeah. archaeology. Right. Yeah. It is. Um, it's funny you say art because sometimes when we, like when you do outreach and you talk to kids, they first get very upset that we're not bringing them back and that they're there all by themselves, which is totally valid. <laughs> and then if they learn about us like crashing a bunch of things into the planet, they're also... Like, you kind of get questions about, like, litter or garbage or, like, what is the deal there? Mm -hmm. I mean, keeping in mind that if you can imagine, like, the size of a planet and there's... Of course. It's not... It's very small relative to what we're talking about. Right. Especially um, if you want to look at the Earth trash. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Um, <laughs> On land and in space. But one of my coworkers used to just say, no, it's an art installation. We're just decorating. Um, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, no, I like that. And... Speaking of things crashing, Phoenix's back shell is fully covered by Martian dust. I think Phoenix is probably, eventually, everybody said Interior is going to get covered right. in dust, right? They're already archaeological sites. Yeah. No, that's a really great, I've never really thought about it in those terms, but I think it really works. I've long held this opinion about, I mean, I feel the same way about if, anybody could ever get a hold of the Voyager probes, you know, it's like, and the orbiters, which truly, I mean, I think it's really cool how they just work as the relay. It's like, 
exactly whoever's passing by yeah i mean it's quite a complicated system to get everyone to kind of talk to each other and figure out you know who's flying when because the orbiters also have their own science mission right so yeah they're kind of just like tacking on like oh i'm doing my own mission plus every a few times a day i need to kind of collect data right um what's really weird is for sample return we'll have a lot of spacecraft on the ground near each other uh-huh. which is weird but most of those space like it's unclear if they'll be able to talk to each other or not because we're not used to We've never had to have like rover to rover communication. Right. The last thing like that was probably Sojourner Pathfinder, right? Right. Right. Which is like a very specific like right. these two. Um, but we didn't send Perseverance like like also one right. day maybe you should talk to a lander. Like it's it's kind of this weird thing where you'll have orbiters and if things work out in a certain way, like you'll have the lander, mm-hmm. you'll have these two helicopters. You also have perseverance nearby. You'll have orbiters. It's like a lot in a one. It's a very weird. Like it's not a situation we are used to. Yeah, that's pretty cool though. Yeah, that's like that sounds like the first robot party on yeah. Mars, a brewing. <laughs> yeah, as long as we like set it up right. It's like yes, a lot of, of course you a will. A lot of coordination. Yes, but beautiful once once right. executed. Yeah. No, yeah. I think it'll be. Yeah, it'll be kind of crazy to like get it'll be pictures. completely crazy yeah yeah you better suggest sending a paparazzi yeah, camera yeah, for that. a little camera that drives out yeah. yeah well luckily i mean the helicopters have cam- like everyone has cameras so i think there will be good views yeah yeah they'll find a way <laughs> yes that's very cool by the way in case anyone's wondering i am totally available to curate the playlist for this impending martian surface party Did you guys hear that? Mallory is responsible for a software component that is still used every day by Curiosity called Dream Mode. Dream Mode. (laughs) Which very simply put, allows for Curiosity systems to do more in a single day than they could before running on Dream Mode. That is badass. Wait, did you know? Curiosity inspired an entire other Martian robot scientist, Perseverance. Perseverance is the spitting image of Curiosity and borrows all of the elements used and proved by the OG. In the night sky this week, the first quarter moon tonight continues to grow until it is full on Thursday, August 11th. It is rising in the afternoons later and later as the week goes on, and by the full moon on Thursday, the rise time is about 8.06 p.m. Pacific. As for the planets, Saturn is becoming visible in the night, starting to rise earlier and earlier in the southeastern sky. Tonight, Saturn's rise time is about 8.20 p.m. Jupiter is coming out to play earlier in the night sky as well, rising a bit later than Saturn, starting around 10.20 p.m. tonight. And by the full moon, Jupiter's rising around 10. If you're an early bird, as in you're up around 5 a.m., you can catch Jupiter in the south-southwestern sky, Saturn right by the moon just to the right of Jupiter in the southwest, Venus low on the horizon in the east-northeast, and Mars is higher in the sky towards the east.
That's it for In the Sky this week. Mars is the only planet in the solar system populated entirely by human-made robots. I'm Raella, and this has been the Audio Complement to Space Matters, Volume MSL. Stay tuned for my pending petition to get the Mars robots recognized by UNESCO as World Heritage Sites. And one final thank you to Mallory Leffland for celebrating curiosity with me. Both myself and curiosity were lucky to have her. Happy birthday, curiosity. See you in the star stuff.